And when we say the gospel, it's a very popular word. Um, you probably know what it means, but it literally means good news. And we all receive good news over the course of our life. Um, good news about like a high curve on a chemistry test. I remember I was just meeting with a student today. The good news of my chemistry career here was G Wiz in his chemistry class. He gives extra credit for what? Everything. For everything, including community service. And that worked wonderfully when I worked full-time but was paid part-time at a church because then I would just count half of my hours as community service. So I'm pretty sure I got a C in the class, <laughs> but I got an A overall because of those extra credit points. That's good news. You receive good news of people's health becoming better, good news of a girlfriend willing to go out with you, good news of a promotion at work. And, and, and I saw a, a tweet today that I thought was, was fitting for the good news aspect. He said that all men marry up, marry out of their leagues. The fact that you got a real live human woman to marry you is out of your league. Um, and that's true. That's good news for all of us. Um, but when the gospel writers use the term gospel, um, we saw that word a lot last week in Mark, they weren't speaking of another aspect of good news, as if the good news stream is wide and this is just as equivalent as a high grade or, a, or, or someone getting better. When they say good news, when they use the word gospel, they're saying the definite good news, the gospel, the news that is goodest than all other news. But... What makes this gospel so good? And not only good, what makes it enduring? You see, this is a gospel that people have at least hoped for for thousands and thousands of years, but one that has been spoken and preached for at least 2,000 years, one that people have been killed for, for believing in this gospel. In Iraq right now, people who trust this gospel and put their hope in this gospel are being ran out of their country. In North Korea, babies of parents who believe in this gospel are being murdered to punish the parents who trust in this gospel. How is this gospel this good? How can it push us to such great lengths? Even here on the University of Montana, this gospel doesn't need to just be good in title. It has to be good in reality. We have to see the gospel as good news. And if we don't cherish this news, we won't have any reason to hold on to it. And we need to hold on to it. In fact, already in California, Christian student groups are being de-recognized by the university because of the gospel, because of what they believe in. And you see, the truth is, is if you do not see the gospel as truly good news, you will not hold on to it. You will not see it as valuable you will not see it as something to be treasured, and you will let it go. And see, the issue, it's not that I'm up here telling you guys, like, I have this pile of mud, and I'm like, you just have to believe this mud is the best mud ever. You have to believe that this mud is what's best. There's true value in the gospel. And you know, oftentimes, we're blind to that. I had a friend who uh, made a bet with this little, like, five-year-old, and he said, I bet you $1 million that... I can beat you in wrestling. And the five-year-old says, I bet not. And so he wrestled this five-year-old, um, and he's like, you owe me a million dollars. And so my friend, um, just on his, he didn't know what he was going to do, right? He didn't think you were going to actually pay it, but he found like a fake million-dollar bill at a gas station, just like God's mercy led him to this gas station with fake million-dollar bills. And this five-year-old has no concept of fake money. Like all money is real to this five-year-old at the time. And so my buddy, whose name is Cody, he goes and he, 
he's like super pumped about this because he's like, I'm going to give this five, he's going to think he's getting a million dollars from me. And so he goes and he's like, I forgot the kid's name. Let's call him Joey. He's like, hey, Joey. He's like, come here, I have something for you. And he opens up his wallet and he pulls out this million dollar bill. And the kid looks in his wallet and sees two one dollar bills. He's like, I want those. He's like, no, this is a million dollars. And he's like, yeah, but there's two of those. <laughs> and see, see, he saw something as more valuable, but it's funny because the million is, is millions of those little dollars. But he wasn't able to see the value of that. And that's the value of the gospel. It's not that we're being given a substitute and something we're hoping is good. This is the object of ultimate value but oftentimes we cannot see its true value. And in order to see that true value, you have to understand the worth of a million dollars. But when it comes to the gospel, to see the true value of the gospel, you have to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because it all comes down to Jesus. Last week, our final point in looking at three truth claims of Jesus is that Jesus is the gospel. And that's a theme we're going to run into over and over again in the book of Mark. Because for Mark, the gospel is not dogma. The, doc, the gospel is not simply a system of belief. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to see tonight. Specifically, we're going to see three responses to the gospel. Three responses to Jesus that people give us in Mark verses 16, 1, 16 through 28. Um, so let's pray for that and then we'll dive in. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that you are the author of language, and you don't need to add um, flowery language before good when it comes to good news. You breathed good. You created good. You know good. You alone are good. And so give us eyes to see the goodness of your gospel today. Give us eyes to see the person of Christ and respond accordingly Peel the scales off of our hearts so that we may see the true Jesus, the value of Christ. Lord, we pray you make us bold ambassadors for you. We love you. We thank you for this campus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, um, I want to read the last couple verses that we looked at last week to kind of set the table for where we're going today. Um, in those last two verses, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So we saw last week, for those of you who are here, we saw the validation of Jesus before God, the validation of Jesus as the son of God, as God himself, as the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. And immediately after that, Jesus goes to preach the gospel. And this is important because Mark says that after the baptism, Jesus began to preach. But what's interesting is that out of all the gospels, Mark includes the smallest amount of Jesus' actual teachings of any of the four gospels. When Mark gives the accounts of Jesus' teaching, they're the smallest portions of teaching, and that's because Mark is, trying, or Mark is tying the gospel not simply to the words of Christ, but to the person of Christ, to the works of Christ, to what Christ did. Jesus, all of Jesus, what he taught, what he is, what he did, all of that stands at the center of your salvation. And so even though we see Jesus preaching 
less than any other gospel, Mark is saying everything that Jesus is doing is proclaiming to you the good news of Jesus. Jesus is teaching by doing and saying. And see, that's different. We, we need to use words. Jesus was the word. Jesus didn't need to use words like we did, but he chose to. And so our story picks up in Mark 1, uh, 16 through 20. So Jesus has begun preaching, and now we go. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. So here we have Jesus taking a, a lead. There's no introduction to this. He's, just, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees a, sees a couple dudes. Simon, um, who we know as his name will change in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospel I was tells Simon, who is called Peter. He sees Peter and Andrew, and Jesus calls them. He just calls them. And you see, last week, we looked at the, the reality of us, and we said our response to someone is directly proportional to their perceived authority in our life. We respond to authority. Whether perceived or real, we respond in accordance to our authority. And here, Mark is highlighting the innate authority of Jesus Christ. The innate authority. You see, these men didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus hadn't done many miracles. Jesus hadn't taught a lot. Jesus wasn't frequenting the synagogues. Jesus didn't have billboards and podcasts at this time. They didn't know who Jesus was. Yet Jesus called them and they responded immediately. Jesus called, men followed. Why? Because Jesus has a different authority. Because Jesus is the authority. And here we see the first response to the gospel the response of the called. And if Jesus is the gospel, as Mark is arguing, what is the first thing Jesus came to do? Jesus came to call men to himself. That's what Jesus came to do. That's how Jesus started his ministry. It wasn't simply by preaching to the masses. It wasn't by turning water into wine. Jesus started his ministry by calling men into relationship with himself. And this story is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and that of Luke. And Matthew's account is really similar to what we just read um, in Mark. But Luke records a miracle that Jesus did in calling these guys that the other two Gospels don't record. And we see that miracle in Luke 5, verses 4 through 8. And, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, this is Jesus talking, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down your nets. He's like, Jesus, let us stick to fishing and you stick to doing what you're doing, okay? We haven't caught anything all morning. Fish don't bite in the middle of the day. But he's like, because of your word, I'll let them down. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the, both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. 
So here we see Jesus caused the biggest fish feed these fishermen had ever seen, right? Their, their job is fish. Their business is fish. Their life is fish. And they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And Jesus, again, because of his authority, tells them to put the nets in, and they pull out this huge catch. They're overwhelmed by the fish, but we also see Peter himself is overwhelmed by something else. He throws himself at Jesus' knees, and he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. You see, they don't know the reality of who Jesus is yet, but they know he's unique, and they know Jesus is distinct. And they say, whatever you are, you're not like me. You, you need to be separate from me. I am a sinner. You have great power. You are different. You see, these guys knew because of Jesus' miracle that he was unique, that he was not like them. But what happened because of the miracle? Amazement happened, but that was about it, right? We don't see masses flocking to Jesus here. We see a buzz about Jesus. Luke 5, 9 tells us that everyone who was with the brothers was amazed at what Jesus had just done, but amazement isn't grounds for fellowship. To be amazed at Jesus isn't the same thing to be a follower of Jesus. And why is it? Because this is a huge miracle, right? Jesus is just like throwing fish into boats like it ain't no thing. And yet Mark and, or Matthew and Mark don't record it. Why? It's because Luke, who was a doctor, was very precise, and he's like, this is an important part of the story, and it is. But Matthew and Mark look at the calling of the first disciples, and they say the disciples didn't follow Jesus because of the miracle. The disciples followed Jesus because Jesus called the disciples. The disciples followed Jesus because Jesus himself told them to follow him, and they followed him immediately. Even in Luke We see the miracle, but we don't see anyone following Jesus until Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And in calling men to himself, the greatest transformation happened. And you see, the calling of the first disciples isn't unimportant to us. While we may not have a verbal call, we're not going to see Jesus walking out. We're not going to be fishing on the Clark Fork, and he's going to like throw your line in, and fish are just going to like spear the hook all the way down. We're going to pull him out. That's not what's going to happen. So why is this important to us? Because Jesus always calls followers into relationship with him. What Jesus did with the disciples isn't separate than what Jesus has done in your own salvation. Look at what Jesus said. Look at the language of Jesus in Luke 5, verses 31 through 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So here we see Jesus talking, and it's not just the disciples who are being called. Jesus has come to call the sinners. Jesus has come to call the unrighteous. Why? To make them well. Jesus has come to call them. In John, Jesus is talking about the good shepherd. He's talking about my sheep hear my voice. And we see him say this in John 10 verse 3. To him, that's the good shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus calls his sheep. Paul um, reflects on this in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. His introduction to Romans, he says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Why, why does Jesus keep using this term? Why does Paul see that as the way in which we are brought to Jesus Christ? Well, Peter the one who we just saw was called, Peter and Andrew. Peter speaks of this a little more clearly in 1 Peter 1, uh, 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race. God chose Peter and Andrew. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, the defining moment of Peter and Andrew and James and John's life was Jesus' call to them. And similarly to us, the defining moment of our life is Jesus' call to us. You see, the God of the universe saw these rant. Jesus Christ, God came down. We saw that last week. God came down, was walking by a lake, saw these four dudes, and he's like, you guys follow me. You guys follow me. The God of the universe was calling them into a relationship with him. Now, Jesus, Jesus wasn't obligated to do that. Right? Jesus was like, these dudes, dude, fishermen? It's like, let's get some scribes and some lawyers. Let's get some chariot drivers. It's like these fishermen are, and Jesus is like, you guys, follow me. I mean, imagine what would have happened if Jesus just passed by, right? He's at the lake. It's pretty scenery. Fishermen are stinky, and they're loud and obnoxious. If Jesus passed them by, they would have never known. They would have went about doing the exact same thing they had been doing, and they would have done it until they died. But Jesus intervened in their lives and called them out. And see, the cool thing is that Jesus didn't just call them. He did call them, but Jesus' call is different than our call. Jesus' call is efficacious, meaning it's always effective. See, I have a little terror, like people call it terrible twos. Owen hasn't even reached two yet. And I will call Owen. I'll be like, Owen, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of going to sleep. Um, <laughs> And, and I will say it, and I'm a pastor. I have like a booming voice. I've got everything for a perfect call, but, but it's not efficacious. Owen doesn't do it. Just the last two days, I've had conversations with him where I'm just like, Owen, don't. Owen, don't. Owen, don't. And he's like right in front of me and just doing this thing. Yet Jesus, when he calls somebody, they respond immediately in accordance with Jesus' call. Why? Because Jesus is better than Tyler. Because Jesus has a different authority. And this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was marked by an effective and life-altering call of relationship with him. Jesus had come to call those who were in darkness into light. This is the gospel. You see, the gospel isn't that we found Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus found us and called us to be with him. Jesus found the disciples. Jesus called his followers. Jesus calls those who will be saved. 
He called those who are living an ordinary life to be brought into an extraordinary, supernatural, eternal life of glory. He called those who were in death, and he called them into life. Has Jesus called you? Have you responded to that call? And maybe this is his way of doing it. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. And you've never seen the beauty of what Christ did. You've never seen that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, has sent his son to call you into fellowship with him. And if that's you, my word is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because Jesus is merciful in calling his disciples. He didn't need his disciples, but Jesus did, did it to be merciful to them and to be gracious to us so that his message would endure after he left. And Jesus is merciful in calling believers into a relationship with him. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. But he chose to. Jesus came to bring men into relationship with him. So what marks this relationship? What does it mean to be called by Jesus? Well, two things we saw in this text. It means following and it means becoming fishers of men. You see, the true identity of Jesus is written on his back. You must follow him to know him. You have to be with Jesus to know him. You can't claim to know Jesus and not follow him. You can't claim to love Jesus and not serve him. You can't claim to worship Jesus and be separate from him. You can't claim to know Jesus and yet live a life that is separate and uninformed of him. You see, my life is different because I know what's harmful for me and because I know what's good for me. I live in accordance to what I know. And if you don't know Jesus, you won't live in accordance to that. But if you claim to know Jesus, that knowledge should shape everything you do. You see, Jesus isn't simply a creed to believe or a service to attend. He's a person and a lifestyle to be followed. It's a lifestyle to be emulated. And if you claim to know him, yet do not live like him, you only deceive yourself. God's not deceived. Jesus isn't deceived. You're deceived. It means to follow him with wholehearted affection. Secondly, the call means uh, that Jesus makes his followers to become fishers of men. And I love how Mark puts it here because I grew up in church and I grew up singing, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, right? VBS, how many people were there? Yeah, you know that song? Um, you got the actions and everything, um, which, which this is how they fished. They had like rods and reels back then. Um, that's not true. Uh, anyway, uh, and I love how Mark puts it here. Because Mark, uh, well, let's look at the verse. Mark 1, verse 17, and pay attention to the verbiage here. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You see, oftentimes, and at least in my memory, I grew up, and it's just, I will make you fishers of men. That's what Jesus said. Like, it's a simultaneous, concurrent act. When you're called, when you're Christian, you are a fisher of men. But that's not what Mark's saying Jesus said here. In fact, in the Greek, there's actually this word, I know that because I have a Greek final tomorrow and I've been cramming for it. There's, there's a word wedged in between that literally means become. Mark put that in there for a purpose. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. You see, in one sense, what we see here, the literal sense of what's going on is Jesus is calling his disciples 
because Jesus wanted to surround himself with co-laborers. He wanted to surround himself with gospel proclaimers, people who sought those who were lost, who cast their nets into the sea of darkness and death to pull men to the salvation of God. Excuse me. But in another sense, I, yeah, we could edit that out later. But in another sense, this is true of all who have been called by Jesus. Jesus wants us to become fishers of men. And what I love about that becoming word is that it, 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 it takes away that false thing that when we are saved, we become fully, bold, natural evangelists. It, maybe I'm just the weirdo who that didn't happen for. But by keeping that becoming in there, Jesus is saying, it takes work to be an evangelist. It takes work to be a fisher of men, but it's something worth fighting for when you're following me. And it's something you should be fighting for following, following me. You see, Jesus doesn't call us and we automatically become the world's greatest evangelist. He calls us and we have the world's greatest message. But Jesus calls us and we have a great task of becoming fishers of men. It's not a plug-and-play thing. If you think that just by believing in Christ and following Christ, you're going to have all the right things to say at all the right moments, and it's not going to be awkward to evangelize or talk to your coworkers or your roommates about Jesus, you're wrong. It is going to be awkward. What we preach is foolishness to those who are perishing. But when you see the weight of Jesus' calling, it's something we seek to become. And we put in the awkwardness and we put in the tears, and we put in the prayers, and we put in the effort. Why? Because Jesus has called us so that we may call others to that same salvation. So are you doing that? Are you one who follows God? And if you are one who follows God, are you becoming a fisher of men? Do you leave that to the professionals? Do you leave that to your community group leaders? Do you leave that to your pastors and your your counselors, or are you, as someone who God himself has called, are you one who is proclaiming that? Look at 1 Peter 2.9, a verse we just looked at, but look at what he's saying. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, purpose statement that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. You see, we need to be fishers of men, and it takes work. It takes a right view of the gospel. It take, takes a heart which breaks over the lost. It takes men and women who are not ashamed of the gospel. It takes followers of Jesus, not acquaintances of religion. But this is what Jesus has called us to, and this is what GCF is about. Jesus has called us so that we may call men. Are you actively engaging the people around you with the gospel of Jesus? If not, work at it. I have work to do. I let my fear of man and I let awkward situations hinder me from proclaiming things. Just at lunch today, we had some guys who were gathered eating grizz burritos because that's what men do. Um, and it, was t it would have totally been a normal, talking about sports, talking about what you could put in breakfast burrito. But, but I, know, having just written this sermon, I, we started asking spiritual questions. Why? Because it's worth it. 
where five Christian guys are gathered, we ought to be able to discuss the gospel because we care deeply about the eternal security of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we talked about it. You see, Jesus' church will not grow by sitting and waiting. It will grow by sending and talking, by preaching and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because we have been called in that same way. And so we take the calling of Christ and we go boldly. The response of those who have tasted the good news of the gospel is to follow Christ immediately in faith and proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. Are you doing that? And if you're not, do you recognize where you need to grow? Do you recognize the means of growth? That's the response number one. The last two responses, um, I want to read the seven verses um, on the last part here. And I want you, I'm going to tell you kind of what to pay attention for. I want you to look at the response of the crowd, and I want you to look at the response of the demon. Verses 21 through 28. And they, that's Jesus and his new band of merry men, um, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So the first thing I want to look at here um, is the response of the demon. Okay, And so I'll just look at that again really quick in verses 23 through 26. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. I feel like I have to read this in a, like a demon-y voice, but I'm trying not to. Um, <laughs> What have you to do, Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What if demons really just have like soft, sweet voices and this whole time they've just been misconstrued in the media? Um, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So this is response number two. The response number two to the gospel is the response of evil. You see, isn't it interesting here that, that Jesus is in a synagogue? And in the synagogues, it's a place where there's like the, in, in, the, in the structure of education, there's the temple in Jerusalem, and then there's synagogues. And what would happen in the synagogues is they didn't have an official priest like they had in the temples, which is why Jesus was able to go in and preach. But what would happen is the scribes who would know the Old Testament inside and outside, um, who were scholars on it, who would make interpretive decisions on the Old Testament, they would come to the synagogues and they would teach. And here Jesus is in the place of scholars and scribes, and they hear Jesus and they say, who is this man who has this authority? You see, if anyone was to know who Jesus was, Jesus himself, John said, this is who the Old Testament's pointing to. In Luke 24, Jesus says, I'm the one the Old Testament points to. And yet Jesus is among the world's greatest Old Testament scholars. And they're like, who is this guy? 
And yet, the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And not only does the demon know who Jesus is, but he responds in fear saying, have you come to destroy us? And this is mind-blowing because here we see a demon, an evil spirit controlling a man, recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God and asking if Jesus had come to destroy him. Why is that? Because even the demons know that God was going to destroy sin. They knew their days were numbered. They knew that God ultimately is righteous and pure, and anything that stands in opposition to God will be destroyed. In Ephesians, Paul is naming off a laundry list of sin. Basically, he's describing college campuses. Um, Drunkenness and orgies and lust and impure thoughts and vulgar language and chemistry labs. He's like, because of all of this, the wrath of God is coming. Because of sin, the wrath of God exists. Those of you who are at Bible study on Tuesday, we looked at that in Romans. Sin exists and sin exhibits the wrath of God. The demons know that. The demons know the wrath of God is coming. The demons know, and James says, that they shudder at it. They're terrified of who Jesus is because they know why Jesus has come. God hates evil. God hates sin. And humanity is sinful. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. Going even further, the prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so it's not that we're good people at our heart. We just do bad things. God says, your heart is sinful. It's not the actions. The actions are secondary. Your heart is the reason for God's wrath. Because you are sinful. And the demons know the power and wrath of God is coming. And they know that one day all sin will be destroyed. And so he asks Jesus, are you coming Is this the time you destroy everything sinful? And I love how Jesus doesn't answer him. He says, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit came out of the man. Do you see what Jesus has proved in these last two paragraphs of text? Jesus' words were powerful and effective over humanity. And Jesus' words were powerful and effective over the spiritual realm. Jesus is all authority. There is nothing under heaven or on earth that is outside of Jesus' control because Jesus is the greatest authority the world has ever seen. But the greater story, the story that brings us back to the gospel, actually comes in Luke's account of this same event. Looking at verse verse 35 chapter 4 verse 35 says this but Jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and when the demon had thrown him down that's the man the demon was possessed down in their midst he came out of him having done him no harm you see while the demon was destroyed the man was saved You see, it would have been completely just for Jesus to come into this instance, see this evil spirit, and just kill the entire man. 
Silence the spirit, get rid of the sinful man, and it's done. The wrath of God would have been completely just to come in and destroy that entire circumstance. But Jesus, in his mercy, chose to destroy sin, yet spare the man. And that's because Jesus came to destroy sin just as the demon feared. But Jesus also came to call men into salvation. And here we see the hope of the gospel. Because on the cross, Jesus was going to kill sin, but he was going to kill sin so that those who believe in him might believe and have eternal life. You see, we are the beneficiary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gain the most to benefit from the person and work of Jesus because we taste a salvation we don't deserve in severing a sin we've asked on ourselves. And Jesus has come to save us. In closing, the last response is the response of the crowds. I'm just going to read those two portions quickly. And they went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then we see the event of the exorcism and then picking up in verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We see two things here. One, we see those in the synagogue who are amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? Remember, we said they had the best scribes, they had the best scholars, they had the best Old Testament people there, and yet they say, this man speaks with a different authority. And that's because the Old Testament is the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus came and had no intermediary between him and his people, but he spoke as God, for God, by God, and said what the Old Testament pointing to was me. And people saw that and they're like, this is a different authority. This is a new teaching. And yet it's not new and it's not different. It's what the Old Testament pointed to. The greater news, the Messiah of the Old Testament had come and he was amazing people. We see the first thing is people were amazed at Jesus' words in the first part. They were amazed at his teaching. But secondly, they were also amazed at Jesus' work. See, this man, this, this man with the demon, was, the demon was cast out and, and it said it was convulsing him. The demon didn't want the man to survive this. The demon wanted to kill it. Sin wants to kill you. Sin's never your friend. It's never to your benefit to be sinful. And so the demon's like, be like all right, Jesus told me to go. Are you okay? Can you stand on your own? Is this okay if I leave? The demon wants to harm this man. It's only by the grace of God that he wasn't harmed. And so these people see these weird things that Hollywood likes to make movies about every other Friday of these exorcisms and people flailing and screaming and demons flying out. And yet all of this happens and the people in an amazing moment of clarity aren't amazed at the event. They're amazed at the person. They don't say, holy crap, what happened to that dude? They say, who is this man? who has authority over the demons. They were amazed at the works of Jesus. And Jesus' frame, frame spread like wildfire. He, Mark uses two words here, everywhere and throughout, to show the pervasive way in which Jesus was gaining popularity. And that's because Jesus is amazing. That's because Jesus does amazing things. We shouldn't really be shocked when God does God things, yet we should be amazed by it. 
And so his fame spread. But you know what? As Jesus continued his road to the cross, the crowds became smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's because excitement about Jesus is not a substitute for a relationship with him. You see, who was with Jesus? Who endured with Jesus to the end of his life? It wasn't the crowds. It wasn't the masses. It was the small group of believers who Jesus had called into a relationship with him. You see, people will know Jesus because of the fame, but they will only belong to him through his call. See, everyone knows Jesus. If we all know Jesus, and if we all have the idea that he came to be a savior, why aren't we all Christians? Because not all people know him and respond with an intimate relationship to the object of greatest worth. So how will you respond to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus? Are you caught up in the excitement of church? Maybe you like a certain preacher, or you like the music, or you like the people, but you're lukewarm to Jesus himself? You see, Jesus came as the true authority. Jesus came as the one who has authority over humanity and spirits, and he hasn't come to be a sideshow. He's come to be a savior. To be amazed and caught up in the emotion is good, but if you're not tied to the person and work of Christ, it's for nothing. Is Jesus at the bottom of your joy? When you strip down why you do things and why you believe things, is the center of it Jesus Christ himself? Because if it's not, it will not last. But if Jesus has called you and you see him and you joyfully follow him and you labor to bring others into that joy, you have the greatest gift and the most enduring life the world will ever know. Or are you one who, like the demon, knows of Jesus? Man, here's a man in the synagogue possessed by an evil spirit. Right? He knows Jesus because he's in the synagogue and he knows Jesus because he's possessed by an evil spirit. He knows Jesus. And yet he wasn't saved. He knew all of the dogma. He knew all of the beliefs. You see, in the same way, excitement isn't a substitute for relationship with him. Neither is knowledge. Unfortunately, hell will be filled with many theologians who know all of the truth claims of Jesus, but never responded with a personal relationship. To know about Jesus and not respond to him is equally wrong. Do you worship him? This Jesus forces us to respond How will you do it? That's the question I leave with you. How will you respond to Jesus? And not just that, how are you right now responding to him? Are you responding as one who is called and is following and is growing and is preaching? Are you responding as one in fear who sees their own sin and sees a righteous God standing on the other end? Are you one who responds in warm fuzzies and amazement but doesn't have the affection and worship of a follower? I want to leave us with this quote from Martin Luther. It says this, The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Christ is Savior. It's quite another thing to say that he is my Savior and Lord. The devil can say the first, the true Christian alone can say the second. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray for um, your people. We, I mean, you, Jesus said while he was on earth that he, he cannot go yet because he has not called all of those who are his. So, Lord, we pray tonight we respond to your call. We pray that there are people in here whose hearts are warmed over, who realize the sin in their life and respond to Jesus with affection. And we say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And Lord, we pray for those who have responded to that call, who are followers, Lord. We pray you give us power through the Holy Spirit to fight sin and live like Christ so that we may be better witnesses. I pray you push us and make us uncomfortable so that we may see the weight of your gospel and the weight of life and death and preach with boldness that Christ alone came to call men out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for calling your people. Thank you for conquering Satan. And thank you for stirring our hearts to a true anchor of Jesus Christ.